connecting fluidly in, in stride. It's perfect. And it just basically unzips the opponent. Hello and welcome back. Oh my God, it has been forever. Uh, William, we are returning to the Touchline Theory studio here uh, today to record what should have been last week's episode, but we're going to kind of move it up a little bit and do it today. Um, we've had quite an eventful week, week and a half, uh, and here we are. We're finally returning to our duties uh, cutting the, you know, the slack, the slacking at least, and, and getting ready to, can I redo that? <laughs> we've spent, we've spent like, oh my God, we've spent like 10 days not doing this. We did one episode we didn't do and my brain is totally fried. I'm all over the place. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. Listen, here's what happened. Um, I, I was going to start talking there and I needed to take a big old sip of water because I used to tell my voice wasn't going to do it. Uh, <laughs> the rest uh, is piling up already. That's what happens when you get out of practice. But listen, guys. So last week, uh, we we lament having missed the episode. We apologize to, to everyone that was looking forward to hearing our review of the uh, UEFA Champions League final between Chelsea and Manchester City. Uh, we had some unforeseen circumstances last week that caused the delay. I think uh, circumstances that are forgivable or at least uh, somewhat understandable. Um, I suppose I can start, William, with... Oh, sure. My... Yeah, you, you, you go ahead. Mine will sound so... better after your reason. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my alibi is effectively... Um, I was thinking a lot about this game. I watched this game twice over. Uh, typically, when I when I do match analyses like this, I, I like to kind of watch the game, especially if it's a significant one, for pure enjoyment first, and then kind of in a more uh, deliberate phase. And so I'll I'll like record the match and then watch it over again and actually try to, you know, well while I'm watching it the first time, I'll kind of annotate little tidbits, high level things, and then I'll kind of like really really scrutinize the full match for the things that I noticed. Uh, over the course of the full 90, then a subsequent time. And so <laughs> when I do that, then I'll chop up clips and I'll annotate them and I'll use whatever software free trial I have at that given time to do that. And so this time I I, I became completely and utterly fascinated by this final, right? So this, this episode is really about the fact that I thought this game was utterly marvelous. I thought this was an, a total masterpiece by, by Thomas Tuchel. And I think... Um, or Tuchel, we literally talked about this. How do you pronounce the last name of this guy? Uh, I think it's more Tuchel. Tuchel? Okay. Something like that. But in, in any case, so I, I was very, very impressed with what Tuchel was able to do against Pep Guardiola, and I found a lot of things that I thought were really, really interesting. And so, Will, I, I texted you expressing kind of my uh, delight for this match, and you weren't so interested, were you? I wasn't so interested and I'll get this out of the way early. Probably a big part of that was the way I ended up watching the final. Um, I was 
at a soccer tournament this weekend with the team I'm coaching uh, out in Chicago, and I ended up having to watch it kind of last minute, having to pick a bar to stop out there. It was, you know, not not a perfect environment. We had no sounds. There was audio from like a baseball game on, and it was a pretty small TV. So I <clears throat> I didn't love it, and I then watched it again later, and it changed some of my views on the game, but not all the way. I definitely liked it a lot less than you did. That's for sure. Yeah, or so it seems like it, and and so so I guess before we kind of dive into it, that's the premise of today's episode. Today's episode is basically going to be me trying to convince Will that there were tactical um, points of intrigue in that final that were very much worth the what I would maybe even venture to call like all-time great performance uh, and all-time great tactical setups conversation. And in essence, the outline today is entirely written by by me. Will, you've come in here with, uh, you know, a clean slate, ready to uh, hear my side of things and probably uh, disagree with quite a few things, I guess. Not not today. Today, I'm just like a sponge, just here to soak up whatever you tell me. I'm not going to disagree with any of it. So, <laughs> Okay, well, that'll be a uniquely agreeable podcast then for everybody that's missed us over the last week. And, and hopefully a uniquely short podcast for us. That's that's one of the main goals for this week. One of the reasons we're trying to only have one of us bring a bunch of stuff to the table is we, we've really done a bad job keeping the time down. And maybe this what's creeping up on a six minute intro is not helping <laughs> with that. But yes, I, I think that is one of our big goals is to actually get this down to a manageable time because I... I know that no one has the time to listen to a podcast that's an hour and 50 minutes long every week. I mean, I barely even do, and I, I care more about this than most of you probably do. So we're, we're working on it, and just if you are with us, then stick with us as we continue to maybe shorten down the time and tighten up the episodes. And uh, yeah, let's maybe work towards that today. Let's get started here. For sure. Um. I think in the spirit of let's do it, let's do two minutes, just two minutes of recapping basic things that have happened since we've been gone. I think that it's important to just go over those quick things and then we'll dive head first. We'll, we'll go straight towards our halftime whistle and we will cut ourselves off like we promised we would last week. So All right, two minutes, I'm just going to do a rapid fire uh, round of updates. So uh, we did an entire episode trying to explain why Gareth Southgate was going to have trouble picking in the national team roster and specifically the right backs. And he made his decision. He brought on four right backs and then Trent Alexander Arnold, the highly controversial one mm. got injured in a friendly leading up to the tournament. So our streak of jinxing literally everything continues. It's a pretty fitting way to end that saga. Um, okay. Rapid fire. I'll move on. I turned 23 this week, which means this is my last chance to win the English Young Player of the League award. So <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to work real hard this season. Uh, beat out Raheem Sterling. Uh, Will, I heard that you uh, pulled off a bicycle kick today playing uh, in a game yourself with your new cleats. Is I that did. the case? Because maybe you're maybe you're on track to, to win that award now. It's a, it's a stretch to call that a game. It was literally only me uh, out in the field alone, uh, just <laughs> trying a few bicycle kicks. Most of them... Not so good, but you know when you hit that one, it makes the rest feel pretty nice. Yeah. I I just want to ensure 
you know, that one did go in, right? Or is that simply a, oh, a, uh, yeah, top, a fable? Top that, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. If, if a tree falls in a, in a forest and there's no one to, to watch it do a bicycle kick, is the goal really scored? Well, it's hard to say, but I did admit that I missed most of the rest. And, you know, maybe that makes me a bit more credible for the one that I did make. All right. Um, all right. All right. All right. I'll, uh, believe, I'll believe you. Do you want to go Twitter? <laughs> Tell the people about that. Oh, I skipped over that. Yeah. You important did. update. So, that, but... Yeah. So I was I was creating this uh, analysis video. It's 12 minutes long. I still have it on a Google Drive and I'm I was getting plenty of, of messages from people because obviously you can't post something that's 12 minutes on Twitter. So I was getting, I posted some sort of tweet that was like, hey, I did this analysis. Here's a two minute clip. If, if you guys want to see the rest of it, DM me your email address and I'll, I'll share it with you. And I was very pleasantly surprised to see a lot of people like uh, interested in seeing the game. And I'll attribute that to the grandeur of the match itself, not my particular, you know, skill with analysis in general. But um, what did end up happening was I got banned from Twitter for copyright infringements. And, um, I, I kind of like, yeah, I don't know, man. Like I, I pushed back on it. I sent Twitter a message saying like, Hey, I apologize about this. I do think that this was creative content that I added onto something. I didn't monetize it. I didn't, you know, promote anything of my own or advertise, but, um, as of right now, I'm, I'm basically dead to the Twitter world. And that's definitely the channel through which I get a lot of my soccer news and soccer, uh, you know, peer conversation. So we'll see what happens. Hopefully we'll be resuscitated soon, but that's basically the main reason why we're late really is because we've got no way to advertise this without the Twitter to a certain extent. And yeah, and, uh, one interesting effect of you being banned from Twitter that I noticed, and I maybe didn't put this all together until, uh, recently but i i started getting a few followers on twitter for the first time since i made an account this week and i'm yes. starting to think this might be some sort of vacuum that people you know you got banned so they're just oh man i gotta get my touchline theory content fix but all right well I, there you go you're, you're gonna be very disappointed by my twitter activity so sorry about that if any of you happen to be listening but uh, i do appreciate the follows <laughs> keep it coming keep it coming yeah. um i guess Final final update then. Will, you mentioned that you had a tournament or two, and I know you've been very tired this last couple of weeks with all the games that you're coaching. What's going on yeah, with that? I've, Any results? I've got a few results, but I, I maybe want to do an episode sometime in the future about one of these tournaments in particular and just kind of some of the stuff I've been doing this year. Okay. But yeah, very, very busy couple weekends. I had two tournaments. I've had eight games in the last two weeks with uh yeah i've had to coach three different teams so it's it's been busy Jeez. yeah well okay um i think with that we'll end our our not two minute rapid fire round but at least we got a couple of important things was, out of the it, way it was five minutes but you know now we won't be thinking about any of that stuff for the rest of the episode good 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 so yeah let's just dive into it um as right. we mentioned this is this is basically going to be me um kind of like on the witness stand trying to convince Will, the jury, uh, that this game was, in fact, very, very interesting. Um, I just envisioned myself as more of a judge, but that's okay. Um. <laughs> um, you'll have to use your imagination a little bit with this one. So, without further ado, um, I, I kind of want to start by discussing kind of what we have on the table here, right? So, with Chelsea against Manchester City, these are two teams that have played each other plenty of times in the past. 
Uh, Chelsea recently had some interesting turnover in terms of their coaching staff this year and also signed what was like 200 million uh, pounds worth of players this past summer, brought in a lot of like young talent, creme de la creme, Europe's finest. And for the first half of the year with Frank Lampard as their manager, didn't really find their rhythm. They weren't able to really flourish and really maximize the, uh, or optimize rather, all of those pieces. But in the second half of the year, they really found form. And that kind of mirrors uh, Pep Guardiola's Manchester City in an interesting way too, because they started off the year pretty terribly as well, and then suddenly kind of took off running uh, for the second half. And so, and and also in terms of financial, you know, investment, I'm not here to say that Chelsea is outperforming uh, Man City in that regard. By any means, they both spend a lot of money. Um, they've spent a lot of money to get to where they are right now. So I, I think what's um, important to kind of outline, there's a lot of things that we can dive really deep in here, but I'm going to try to go surface level. And Will and I have talked a lot about how there are some times where we go on these tangents and there are entire episodes that we try to encapsulate in the span of, you know, you know, one one single episode. And I think that here I'm going to try to kind of surface level cover a couple of topics that we'll probably end up diving into deeper um, down the line. But basically the idea here is that Pep Guardiola of Manchester City, formerly of Bayern Munich, formerly of FC Barcelona, is a coach that um, really believes in the idea of what is called positional play. So right now, for Touchline Theory, the actual blog, I'm actually drafting a, um, a, a kind of a piece that covers what positional play means in a practical sense. Um, I've seen a lot of people refer to it. A lot of people write very kind of mysterious, uh, elusive, tactical exposés about positional play. And I've yet to see really somebody just kind of take it and explain what it does, what its purpose is, why it functions, and so forth. And so that's what I'm working on right now. But at a high level, the idea is that Pet Guardiola and other people who kind of have implemented this kind of this system realize that the soccer field is a very complex thing. It's a very large thing that's very hard to understand. And so the idea of positional play is that by overlaying onto a field, and again, great simplification here. You can we'll, we'll dive into this in much greater detail another time. But by overlaying onto a field a, a grid that basically subdivides this massive plot of land into smaller kind of chunks of real estate, you're able to understand it much better. That's I think the high level that I would like to kind of exp kind of discuss. And so the idea is that what Pep basically does is if you take a stereotypical 442 formation kind of a very boxy you know four defenders four midfielders two strikers and you take that and you draw lines um between between the players kind of like the straight lines between the players so one line that goes along the defensive line one that goes along the midfield line one that goes along the strike force and then the four vertical lines yeah okay and you'll have to kind of visualize this again the idea is basically that um that is the foundation. If you position it in the right place, that, that is the foundation for what this grid kind of looks like. So there's space between, for instance, the right back and the center back. There's space between the right, uh, the right back and the right midfielder and so forth. And so what you end up kind of having are you kind of, you kind of have like these nodes of where players would stand in a very, very stereotypical kind of like generic 442. Yeah. And so the basic idea is that 
and I'll use Pep Guardiola as kind of like the champion of, of this methodology, but the whole idea is that um, this structure and a couple of rules that a coach might impose on this structure can allow a team to organically kind of create fluidly passing, fluidly possession-based, fluidly goal-oriented football. And the, the idea is basically, you know, you have these like lines that define these plots of land and the corners are all the, are the, are the players in this four, four, two. Right. And so the idea is like, if you were to find a player right in open space, if you were to pass the ball to a player in space, one of the advantages there is that it is hard for the opposition to close them down. Right. That space between say you, if you're a 10 will, and you receive the ball in a certain area of the field and the defenders are far away and it's threatening goal. Um, that's a that's a good thing for us as an attacking team. Yep. Now, the the idea is that with positional play, one of the goals becomes to basically find talented players in positions of space that are threatening. Okay, and I know this is again this is hand wavy. This is hard to explain. The article I think is going to be much more structured. But the idea is basically if you imagine like a box with four players, if we take the right center mid, the right center back, the right uh, the right defender and the right midfielder. Let's say we have a square, right? And you put one of your best players in the center of that and they receive the ball facing goal. The idea is basically like they're going to be far away from all of those players, right? It's like at the center of a square with all of the squares vertices. And so what ends up happening is if the defense chooses to defend that, which they probably will by virtue of you being in a threatening position, but far away from each of them, you basically end up dragging those vertices with you. Yeah. Okay. And so let's say, for instance, like you get played into this pocket, the center back might what's called step to the ball. They might step up to you to pressure it. They might try to prevent your progression that way. Mm -hmm. Right. And so basically what ends up happening is you kind of tug the opponent in and out of their rigid formation. And so by doing this and by finding players in succession in these pockets of space, you end up kind of collapsing the defense and manipulating the other team. Okay. And so the whole idea here is that, you know, there's all these different kind of quotes about how you use the ball as a, as a means to manipulate the opposition and you position players in a certain way that allows them to tug the opponent out of positions. And then you can kind of attack in behind them. Very, very complex. But the fundamental idea here that comes from all of this is that when you divide the field into all of these different subdivisions, there's some pretty interesting nomenclature that arises for each of those regions, right? And so down the center of the field, right? Imagine we have a grid that's laid onto this field. Down the center of the field, we just have the center, right? On the, seems pretty easy, yeah. Sure. So then on the edges, we've got whatever. You can call them the, the channels, the flanks, the wings, and so forth. And so in between those two places, which is typically the, the region that is occupied, that is between the center back and the full back in a back four, mm -hmm. those are called the half spaces. And so that, that, um, that region that I was referring to earlier as kind of like this prime spot where a talented player like a 10 might be able to find themselves far away from a bunch of markers that either means they can create very effectively or be pressed by someone where any person that tries to defend them will be tugging the opponent's shape um, out of whack and exposing other weaknesses. So, so that region is the, is the half space. And there's a lot of these regions if you take the entire positional play structure, but this is like the most critical one. And so yeah. 
long-winded explanation. I'm looking at the time here and I know we've got to expedite. <laughs> but the idea is basically like Pep Guardiola in his Manchester City system lines up with basically two tens, what used to be Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva. And yeah. what has occasionally this year been Foden and Kevin De Bruyne or Gundogan and Kevin De Bruyne, or you have some weird combination of other players kind of fitting that, that role. But what he tries to do is he tries to put his best players, his most talented creative forces in these really, really optimized zones within this grid system. And so yeah. Manchester City really, really looks to play players into the half spaces. Okay. That is the, yeah. the high-level idea here. And it, it's an interesting style of play, too, because it's one that I think is very uh, possession-oriented because it's, it's not about time, you know, as, as the name half-space kind of implies. It's about space, right? It doesn't really matter, like, when these players are getting the ball. It's like they hold the ball long enough, work it around. It's more important that they get it in this space than that they get it early, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think the idea, right, is, like, it's this win-win scenario. You get the ball in that space, and no one pressures you, and you have... And a fantastic field of vision with which to attack, right? If you think about receiving the ball on, on, on in the in the width or on the channel with your back to the touchline, you first off only have a certain amount of like goal threat from that region. And oftentimes your your passing options are quite limited by the fact that you have your back with that sideline, right? If you receive the ball in the center and you're oriented in a certain way, you're also quite limited. But the body orientation that's that's kind of possible in the half space enables you to feed balls into the wing feed balls centrally shoot on target drive towards the goal there's a lot more kind of optionality there and so for players that are really capable of doing that be it kevin de bruyne foden david silva and so forth it, it becomes like this hugely valuable patch of land that city routinely tries to get into yeah and so high level right the idea is that chelsea and 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 tuchel we're very, very aware of this. And I'm going to make it a little bit of a disclaimer and say that, like, I haven't watched Chelsea all that extensively this year. I watched this game with great scrutiny. But what I found in this match was effectively the perfect kind of anti-pep, anti-juego de posicion or anti-positional play system that Tuchel created to basically ruin and disrupt Pep Guardiola's approach to playing fluid football and the approach that won him the Premier League this year that has won him plenty of other kind of titles in the past. And, you know, I'm going to try to tackle this through the lens that isn't the low-hanging fruit of, you know, oh, Pep overthought it or, you know, duh, he played three tens in his starting lineup. He had two wingers and an eight who basically was the team's top scorer all year. You know, I don't, I don't want to focus on that argument. I think that, you know, we might touch upon that at the very end. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring those points in. Sure. Like, yeah. it's the type of thing that's easy for journalists to comment on, but it's not the most interesting thing that I found in this game. And so I, I think what's perhaps important to recognize here, too, is that Tuchel is certainly like a scholarly guy. And from what I watched, I, I think before diving into the system that he implemented to kind of stifle Man City's approach. There's a very famous match, a historical game that was played back in 2010 between Barcelona and Inter Milan. Uh, it was a semifinal match of the Champions League, and it was coached by Jose Mourinho on the Inter Milan side. Yep. And Inter Milan got a red card, I believe. Thiago Mata got a red card in like the 27th minute of that match, something like that. He got sent off, and with 10 men 
Inter Milan actually ousted Barcelona and marched on to the final and I believe actually won the, the Champions League that year. Yep. And what was very, very interesting from that game in the interviews and the press that occurred after it is that the, the Barcelona team that Jose Mourinho faced when he was coaching Inter Milan in that match was directed by none other than Pep Guardiola, who had probably the best kind of half-space dominant player ever in Lionel Messi. And so one of the things that was very fascinating about this game, and this game is one that is, I think, pretty ubiquitously considered to be one of the defensive masterclasses of all time. What is fascinating about this game is that Mourinho basically describes their tactics, their approach to effectively caging the beast that was Messi in that match. And what they basically called it was, I think in the Italian press, he made some sort of comment about the fact that the Italian press was calling it a gabbia, a, a jail for Messi. Mm-hmm. And so what Inter Milan basically did was they took Barcelona's best player that they fed everything through. They knew Pep Guardiola had this positional play model, that they wanted to get the ball in the half spaces because it was the ideal place on the field for their best player to succeed. What they basically did was they just surrounded Messi with aggressive physical defender. So they had Lucio and they had Thiago Mata and they had all these different players. They had Cambiaso. They might have, ooh, I don't know if they had Zanetti. They had a bunch of different... Zanetti would have still been around, yeah, 20 times. Like, they had a ton of these players um, just totally crowd Messi and basically build this cage around him. And so there's this really interesting clip that I've actually used in a separate article for Touchline Theory in which basically you see these players just swarm around him. And then finally, what you end up seeing is Thiago Mata, the six in that match. Mm-hmm. He's the one that ends up basically being caught in the cage with Messi. Yeah. Okay. So you have these, these players that are surrounding him, but then Thiago Mata isn't surrounding him. He's, he's the one that's in there boxing with him. And finally, basically Thiago Mata is the one that regains possession. And they boot the ball out of the air, out of the area. And so, what I'm going to kind of call this Thiago Mata role, this idea of trapping the opponent's best players, especially if they're playing with this JDP model, um, and and putting one talented defender who might have a physical presence in the ring with them to fight with them directly, to be a physical presence, to be a nuisance at all times. I'm going to basically call that the cage fighter. Okay. Yeah, and, like and this is. It sounds a bit dangerous. Yeah. Perfect. So. It is dangerous, and we'll talk more about the danger that it posed in a little bit. But the idea is that you have the cage that's comprised by the other players, and you have the cage fighter, the guy that basically kind of plunges into the half space and goes head-to-head with these creative forces. And it's something that, you know, positional play is all about passing between the lines, you know, finding these pockets of space that, if it's a pocket of space, inherently means that the defensive team isn't there, right? And so in doing so, you're playing between the lines. Mm-hmm. the idea with this cage fighter is it says to hell with playing between the lines you don't really have lines between which you can even play because we're going to stick somebody one of our own between the lines that we ourselves are creating okay so again pretty pretty intricate kind of explanation but but i'm, I'm setting the stage for what i think um tuchel kind of i think tuchel kind of took a leaf out of Mourinho's book here yeah okay? he's definitely watched that game absolutely Absolutely. And what's, I I think, even more impressive and even more challenging about this specific match is the fact that in this game, City doesn't have one Messi that Chelsea have to worry about. City have 
they fielded like what, like three tens in that match. They had maybe two tens for the most part. They had fullbacks that occasionally would occupy these half space roles. They had a six and an eight that occasionally, well, a six, so to speak, yeah. Gundogan that would occasionally drift into these pockets. And so they have, instead of having just one target, they had a bunch of different players that were kind of occupying these roles. And it's, again, it's yeah. a consequence of this positional play model. Um, but it becomes super difficult, right? Because you can't just say, okay, anytime this specific guy gets in this specific place, we have to kill him. Instead, well, now it's like... Yeah, it, it makes it harder in some senses. But, you know, you listed a bunch of players taking up those spaces. Like, none of those players are messy, right? So, it, sure. it, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a different challenge. For sure. That's the whole, that's the idea. It's yeah. an entirely different challenge. And so what ends up basically happening, right, um, is that Chelsea wants to control this creative hub of Manchester City. And mm -hmm. so the way they did this, right, I mentioned before that we have the two wings, the two channels, we have the two half spaces just inside of the channels, and then we have the center. So you have five vertical strips, right? Yeah. And with a standard kind of back four, what ends up happening is the back four will typically line up such that they, if you draw a line through each of those players to the back four, they kind of define those five different lanes, right? That makes sense. Yeah. Now, and when you set up with the back five, though, it kind of staggers that, you know, and when you have the defensive line Chelsea does, then you end up with, you know, players in those half spaces that City normally use. Exactly. So... What Tuchel did right off the bat that was very intelligent was he said, okay, we're not going to kind of play into the system that Man City want to see. Instead, what we're going to do is exactly what you just mentioned. We're going to actually put a player in each of these zones, each of well, these that, spaces. That wasn't something that, specific to City, though. The Chelsea have played with the back five all season, but it does match up very, very well. Yeah, Sure, totally agree with you. It's the type of thing that like he didn't just revert to a back five and make some sort of tactical change, you know, out of nowhere, but it's something that if you look at Chelsea's system, I, it was certainly fine-tuned and optimized for this, right? They might have had the five-back as a foundation throughout the year. For sure. I, again, I don't know this, but the way that they implemented it in this game was unlike anything that I had seen before. And so, like you had kind of referenced, the idea is now they've got one person manning the channels in which these lines would otherwise kind of define and what's interesting is like if you look at like google earth images of manchester city's fields or bayern munich back when pep guardiola was there or barcelona and so forth you will see the grid lines that are painted on the training fields for this juego de posición idea right really because it's a light it's like a lifestyle it's the type of thing that like you this is this is the way that you play if you are playing for pep guardiola's side you play like this there's other coaches that have borrowed from it too but it's a, it is something that in order to basically like teach this to players, you sometimes need to show it very, very visually, right? In order to see those lines in your head on the field without them being marked, you probably have to first see them with paint on the ground. You know what I mean? And so the idea is when you take that and then suddenly say, well, now those lines aren't in those spots anymore. And suddenly you put a five back that shifts where those lines are supposed to be. That already begins to be a confusing factor. and. You know, it's not something that I anticipate Pep hasn't coached the team to adapt to in the past. I'm, I'm sure he's run into a five at the back at some point during his coaching career. He's been doing it for a long time. Yes. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, it's a complication already. From 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 minute one, it's a complication. Yeah. And so what, what the five back basically consisted of is you have um, two highly aggressive, highly athletic, 
highly defensively sound fullbacks or wingbacks on either side. You have Chilwell on the left. You have Reese James on the right. We talked about Reese James uh, extensively in the last podcast. Fantastic player. Both of them, really. Yeah. I mean, watch watch that Champions League final and tell me Reese James doesn't deserve to go to the Euros. I mean, it's just crazy mass selection there. So many good options. Yeah, yeah. And watch that game and tell me Kyle Walker doesn't deserve to go to the Euros. And they were two of the best players on the field, I felt like. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I can maybe talk about Walker a bit more in the second half. Sure. I, I totally agree with you. I think Reese James is was, was absolutely stellar in this game. And and the role that those players were basically given in this match was bas- was to say, you know, you have uh, Mahrez on the right for City and you had Sterling on the left for, for City. And what, what those fullbacks were basically told to do was be unbelievably tight on these players and very, very aggressive, right? So anytime any of the wingers of Manchester City received the ball at all, these guys were on their back to the point where they were very, very often, and I will definitely dive into this a little bit more later on, the the, the City players progressively throughout the course of the match, due to the intensity of the pressure that Chelsea applied onto them, they would receive the ball with their backs to goal very frequently. Yeah. And so Sterling would receive the ball and have to immediately shield it from, from Reese James. Mars would receive the ball and be just like pushed up field by, by Chilwell with nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And so this is a very critical, important kind of factor in this is the intensity of that pressure. Very, very aggressive, very tight. No one was ever allowed to turn in this game. Yeah, very, 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 very seldom. Very focused. Yeah, I mean, it's it's about as close as to like one-to-one man marking as you're going to see at this level. Like they, they pretty yes. much never left those men. Absolutely. Yes. And again, like we're talking, I, I have not seen a defensive performance like this. Like you're absolutely right. The focus is really one of the main highlights. And what's interesting, right? If we go from the, from the wing backs now inwards, now we've got Azpilicueta on the right center back role, and then Rudiger on the left center back role. And between them, you have Thiago Silva, who's this obviously like this veteran skipper. So is Azpilicueta. Rudiger yeah. is maybe more stereotypically like a more aggressive, rough and tumble type of guy. Very, very um, the type of guy that you want in the locker room, getting your team amped up at, at, in the halftime. You know, like all unbelievable defenders that have also like come to life this year in particular under Tuchel. Yeah, to to varying degrees, I would say. But yeah, all, yeah, so all why, classic why, defenders. I'm not disputing that at all. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I, I guess I'm not here to necessarily compare the defensive solidity of Aspi and and Tiago Silva to Rudiger, but I think that in this game, when we talk about that aforementioned cage fighter role, mm-hmm. the idea was that Rudiger and Aspiliqueta were both cage fighters on either side, yeah. right? And, and so what they did was you have this five back, and then you have Tiago Silva right in the center. That's a that's a sweeper effectively, who's kind of organizing, but mostly just cleaning up in behind. Rarely, rarely, rarely making a single tackle, even though he got injured very early when Christensen came in. Rarely, rarely, rarely making a single tackle. Yeah. And so what's interesting then is that Aspiliqueta and Rudiger played this unbelievably disciplined, high press within the half space kind of dynamic. And yeah. and so what would basically happen was anytime the ball would get put into the half space, if, if let's say it was it was you know at Diaz's feet. Um, it found Gundogan, and then it went to Zinchenko, who had pushed up into the half space. Azpilicueta was always, always, always right there. Right there every single time. The same thing that we're talking about, these these wing backs, just right there, disciplined, unbelievably, like not a single thing got past them, okay? And so 
what you kind of end up seeing is almost like this side to side, like piston, like pendulum thing where the ball would come to the right half space and Aspilicueta would shoot up and basically join the midfield line almost that mind you was defined by a, a midfield of Jorginho and of Conte. Right. And we'll get yeah. to them in a second as well. Oh, I want to, but yes. you've got these two sixes, these two fantastic like defensive midfielders. And then you have, one of Aspilicueta or Rudiger that, depending on the side that the ball shifted to, would join them in that midfield. And they would basically punch forward. You would have Thiago Silva watching for anything that was going to happen behind them. Yep. You would have the the Reese James or the, the other, like, you know, the other sided fullback in, in Chilwell accommodating for wherever the winger's positioning was. But what you had was this fascinating kind of like up, down, up, down shift back and forth. Anytime anybody ever received the ball in the half space, this again, this territory that's like beloved by the way that Pep wants to play, yep. they were just absolutely suffocated instantly. Yeah. And so what's 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 very interesting then, right, is if we now look at Conte and Jorginho, okay, it seems like we're running up soon on our halftime break, and we'll oh, get to that. We we were running up soon on it about 10 minutes ago, but yeah. Well. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll, so I'll wrap up, I'll wrap up the 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 basis here. So yeah. the idea, right, is like one of the ideas of positional play, as I mentioned earlier, is to manipulate the opposition. And the idea is you bring the ball over to the right side, you start an attack on the right-hand side. And one of the things that Pep talks about a lot is like, if you start the attack on the right-hand side, you should never expect to finish it on the right-hand side. You should expect to finish on the left. Yeah. You bring the ball to the right, you bring the team over here. Maybe you find a player in a pocket of space. The defense collapses around them because they're worried that they have space. You pull it out, you bring it somewhere else, you play the ball negative, you restart, switch the field and so forth. And then you finish on the area that is now, you've now moved the defense out of the way. What's, what's unbelievable about this Chelsea defensive setup is that you simply cannot move them anywhere because this five back at all times is spread so wide, right? You have Reese James and Chilwell that are literally eternally pinned to the sidelines with Mares and Sterling that are trying to spread the Chelsea, you know, the Chelsea defense, but literally just man-marked out in the wings. Mm -hmm. And then you have... Aspilicueta that'll shoot up, Rudiger that'll shoot up. You've got Jorginho and Conte that'll swarm you, that'll go side to side and basically screen out passes, but then they'll also make fantastic challenges. They'll kind of switch off with, with the with the cage fighters to cover for them or to maybe push the press even higher up the field. Um, and then you have, to cap it all off, these three attacking presences in Werner, Mount, and Havertz that ended up eventually subbing on with Pulisic and, 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 and so forth. Yeah. that were just so ruthless in tracking back. Anytime like, there was a City player, and we'll talk about this more in the second half when we dive into the way that City tried to break this down. Anytime a City player tried to like break from deep, like Zinchenko would get the ball and he would drive from where Zinchenko would, or, would stand as a left back, and he would drive and try to kind of disrupt the Chelsea system, Pulisic would follow him, or Havertz would follow him, or Mount would follow him, and, yeah. and it was unbelievable the success that those players had in actually stopping the play. And that's a hard thing to coach attackers to really be committed to is like, you know, really, really preventing the opponent's buildup as, in a way that's more, I would say, tangible than simply, you know, marking out passing lanes, using your cover shadow and trying to, you know, shift the opponent to the left, shift them to the right. This was like legitimately tracking these players, tackling these players, applying pressure and so it became very, very, very difficult for City to thrive within that system. So 
For sure, yeah. And um, maybe, I, I agree. I think the the midfielders were just as big a part of the reason Chelsea won this game as the defenders, I think. And maybe I can kick off the second half by talking a bit about them and what I like so much about what they did in this game. But uh, if, if we have any hope of keeping this under an hour, it's got to be halftime now, guys. So let's... Uh, Sounds good to me. Let's call it off here. We'll check the time and see how quick we're going to have to talk in the second half. All right, guys, welcome back from what you won't know due to the magic of editing, but it's actually our shortest halftime ever. We just we were just so excited to get back into this. We couldn't wait. That was about 30 seconds total, probably. (laughs) Yes, Will, kick us off. I'm going to get straight into it and talk about the midfielders like I promised, Um, because I mean, as Martin kind of outlines the defensive line of Chelsea all had very specific roles, except for Thiago Silva. These are all players that were pretty much tasked with man marking or marking a specific area of space. And like you mentioned, they're also spread extremely wide. So when this happens, you, you need a lot of cover because Thiago Silva is the only one in the defensive line who can normally cover. So that's when Jorginho and Conte become incredibly important. And they were both great, the fantastic match. I mean, Jorginho is not the most mobile, maybe, but he reads the game very well. He's usually in good positions to uh, cover things up, maybe track uh, Gundian or whoever is making an overlapping run from the center. And then Conte is just absolutely everywhere. And and like you mentioned, Havertz and Mount, too. Mount, especially, I thought did a fantastic job tracking back. And I think that's part of the benefit you get when you have, I mean, two players like Havertz and Mount who are, you know, truly midfielders playing in the front line is that they have that experience playing a bit more defensively tracking their man. They did a great job with that. And it just, it stifled city, you know, pretty much every time they tried to add extra players through the center, there would be someone tracking them no matter where it was. And the, the one player who didn't track back a ton is Timo Werner, but that's because Werner has a different role in this team. And you know what, whatever else you think about him, about his consistency, about his finishing, he does have the incredible ability that he's pretty much a one man counterattack. like his movement, his pace, you know, one long ball to him can often get your team completely out of the back. So you can afford to have mountain Havertz track that far back because you still have that deep threat. Yes, I totally agree. I think Werner's specific role maybe is an entirely separate podcast episode unto itself. I think the, the I, fascinating I I think thing he's a very interesting player very underrated player i think people maybe have the wrong impression of him after the season about what he's supposed to be uh yeah like you said whole nother episode but it was a little teaser i think he could become like pretty much muhammad Salah. Uh, interesting interesting yeah. i had a moment where i thought he was really really terrible and didn't like him at all and then after watching this game kind of became enamored with the things that he does off the ball. So definitely maybe we'll, we'll pin that to the corkboard. But yeah, that would be a good on one. The, on the topic of midfielders, you're entirely right. So the thing that was most impressive to me, frankly, was not even necessarily the skill set or the talent or the tackling ability of Conte and Jorginho, but just the communication between them and the back line and everybody else that was involved in basically this defensive block was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And, and I would invite you guys again to watch this compilation that I created where I'm trying to really, really scrutinize like pixel by pixel, every little thing, every kind of like body language gesture and and element that fell on inside of this category of communication because it was truly, truly just perfection. Like we're talking, there's a clip where Kevin De Bruyne starts off being marked by Rudiger 
And in the span of five seconds, he goes from being marked by Rudiger. Rudiger moves off of him and motions to Jorginho, who leaves Gundogan, curls his run, marks Kevin De Bruyne. Then in realizing that Rudiger needs to stay on Bernardo Silva, who's in an area near Rudiger, but he needs to go back to pressing Gundogan because Gundogan's about to press the ball. He motions with his hand backwards to Tiago Silva and Tiago Silva picks up Kevin De Bruyne. This is like in the yeah. span of five seconds. No, it, Just, it was incredible communication. And I mean, it was it was so ahead of the game to the point where like City City weren't getting like dangerous opportunities that were then getting stopped by these defenders tracking back. It's like they would be so ahead of City that like you, you'd never even have the sense that like something dangerous was about to happen. Right? And stifled. The, the thing that was most impressive for me too, right? When you, when you talk about, and once more, this is an entirely different podcast episode, probably the type of thing that we'll have to have a guest on to discuss who's more of an expert than we are. Ooh. Communication is such a fundamentally difficult thing to coach and such a fundamentally hard thing to get everybody to buy into. But this setup, what was really, really interesting to notice was that you saw on almost every single play by almost every, every single player that was remotely in the vicinity, not only was it verbal cues, not only was it verbal cues by one player, right? It was like, this was done by every single player. Verbal and gesture cues at the same time on every single play, which I thought was so incredibly effective because you've got every single time you can see them. It's like Jorginho's pointing, he's yelling. Conte's pointing, he's yelling. You've got uh, Thiago Silva pointing and yelling. Rudiger is pointing and yelling. And everybody is just collectively trying to organize themselves. And... That type of system is the type of thing where where the, the players just recognize that they're they're not gonna left leave any stone unturned, anything that anybody finds. They're like, you know, they're like foraging through the through the the forest and they're trying to find berries as you know, like hunter and gatherer society, whatever. Anytime one person finds a berry, they tell everybody, hey, we've got a berry right here, everybody's gonna eat this berry. Yeah. It's yeah, just it's such like a cult. It's like ants. Maybe would have been a simpler example. But yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, like, like ants. Like they they find they find one thing, one threat, one one component of danger, and it's not like oh, I have to deal with this, or you know, some soft spoken you know effort to to raise awareness. Everybody is so locked in, trying to make sure that nothing gets past them. Mm -hmm. And so it's like it's the pointing, it's the it's the shouting, it's the motivation, it's all these different things that come together. And you just literally do not see these players get the like get the ball with space with time in these regions. They just collapse onto them. Yeah. And so I think what then is also as you mentioned, right? Like Thiago Silva is left somewhat isolated in some of these situations, but. The fact of the matter is the way that this was so well coordinated, there was like always a backup, always a backup. Yeah. Somebody, somebody would go to press and there'd be somebody in behind and somebody would fill in behind and then the ball would move somewhere else. Someone else would go into press and then somebody else would fill in behind. And it was just this incessant, well-oiled machine. Again, it was like a line of pistons. Yeah. Some players would go up, others would go back. Some would go up, some would go back. Yeah. Unbelievable. And one thing that helped, I think that maybe we haven't mentioned this is uh, we mentioned that Chelsea were quite wide. But in terms of depth, extremely compact. Like yes. their, their midfielders were right next to their defensive line almost the entire game to allow for that kind of uh, quick switching and picking up markers and stuff like that. Like that was really striking when you were watching it. Yes, very dense, very very tightly packed. And again, that 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 goes along with the whole anti juego de posición idea, where the other team clearly is trying to play between the lines. If you shrink your lines and you make your lines very very small, how are they going to play between them? They can't. Yeah. And so I think 
perhaps one interesting thing to get into now with the foundation laid as to how kind of Chelsea set up their system is like, okay, how did City try to break this down, right? Because in the beginning of the game, it was a lot of unsuccessful kind of rough and tumble. And and one thing maybe it's important to mention too, Chelsea were also extremely physical. I speak of rough and tumble, but very, very physical. Every single time that say they had one of the cage fighters press one of the city tens in the half space. Let's say the ball doesn't arrive to them every single time. They made sure to give those players just a little bit of a nudge, just a little bit of a step on the heel, just a little bit of a shove, something to just body them and remind them like, Hey, there's a physical mismatch here. We're here to muscle you around. We're here. We're in the ring with you. We've got a size difference and we're going to, we're going to do this type of thing. And it was these like very innocuous cheap shots but these cheap shots that eventually that were never the type of thing that would cause any player to dive, right? No, never the type of thing that was like too serious, but the type of thing that like kept giving City this feeling of like, oh, I can't shake these guys. And yeah. I think that was very deliberate and culminated in basically Rudiger in the second half doing precisely that when he he kind of took it a little bit too far, probably not necessarily. Well, he knew what he was doing. It wasn't and in, in his intention to really do this, but he ends up basically fracturing Kevin De Bruyne's face. And he has like an orbital fracture in his face now yeah. um, by basically like giving him this after the play kind of contact in the half space, the same thing that we're talking about. He catches his face, I think on Rudiger's shoulder and they both go down. Rudiger goes down to try to not get called for it. For sure. And, but, and this wasn't like a malicious thing from Rudiger. He wasn't like aiming for De Bruyne's face or anything, but like he was clearly trying to like leave a mark on him and like put some hard contact in. Yeah. It's the it's the culmination of a deliberate tactic, which is to say, make sure they know you're there. Make sure to leave your presence known and well, it, to make your presence known. It just changes the focus for an attacking player. You know, it becomes a question of, no, I, I have to move the ball on in a second. So like our attacking play can work. Now it's like... I cannot physically be here in one second or else I'm going to get flipped over by Rudiger or something. So what that does, right, besides, you know, taking out City's best player, in my opinion, probably by far. I mean, Ruben Diaz, you can say what you want, but I think Kevin De Bruyne is the most talented player on that team. For this game, definitely their most important, I would say. Right. And so besides that, what it ends up doing, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is it progressively forces City to receive the ball with their backs to goal. And so instead of receiving the ball with the open body shape that allows you to take advantage of the half spaces, right, that I mentioned, where you can receive the ball, play it to the wing, play it centrally, drive, shoot, play a through ball between the fullback and the center back for an on-running striker that's making a diagonal run. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is nullified when suddenly you have players that are receiving the ball and so scared of this physical contact that they feel the need to immediately shield it. And there's a bunch of clips in the match where players receive with their backs to options, be it Zinchenko receiving the ball with his back to Sterling out wide and not being able to see how much of an option he might have been, or Foden playing a ball to Bernardo centrally where he is receiving with his back to the field and Foden makes an excellent run where he could have been played into space and it's just not found. Stuff that's super atypical of City and stuff that you can tell is rattling them because what what proceeded to kind of unfold in the second half was just this total, utter mental lapse, this, this inability to do the things that City does well. Like we're talking simple passes misplaced out of bounds. We're talking touches yeah. that are poor. Things that are like the the bread and butter that define Manchester City that are just not coming off. And what that what that really symbolizes or what that signifies is just they've been shaken mentally by this. 
Mm-hmm. And so, okay. What did they what did they then try to do, right? Because at the beginning of the game, like I said, most of it was trying to like get a feel for what Chelsea's system was going to be, trying to quell the counterattacks that that Werner and Havertz were were doing quite expertly. But over the course of the match, I think City made some what I would consider to be moderate efforts at trying things that I think had a strong chance of actually working to break up this system. Okay, and so... And, and maybe this is where our opinions on this game will start to diverge <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> sure, so... Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm positive they will. I, here's what I'll say. These, these efforts didn't come to fruition, but they're things that if I were to take this game and look at it in retrospect, I probably would have doubled down on. That's what I would, that's what I would say. And I think that in doubling down on them, they might've worked. Yeah, but, sure. Well, let's see, let's hear them and we'll see if I agree. So, yeah. So, so the first thing that I would say that they tried to basically counter this by was by using third man runs. So another podcast topic onto its own, but a third man run is basically, we know what a wall pass is. I think most people would understand that if you pass the ball to somebody and then they pass it right back to you, once you've moved, the idea is if you have a defender that's coming at you, you can basically play it around that defender, right? That's a wall pass. A third man run is basically a coordinated sequence of passes between basically three people in which one player plays a ball to someone else, that player plays it to another player, and then perhaps the ball is returned to the original one. Or situations in which you have kind of one additional step to that wall pass, right? And what is kind of fascinating about this and you can read plenty of literature about Xavi or Iniesta's opinions on the third man run but this is the type of move that many people consider to be like one of the keys to unlocking football like if you are able to coach your team to do a bunch of third man runs like you see Leeds Marcelo Bielsa had some sort of goal this this year where his Leeds team did like a third or a fourth man run where you've just got this brilliant play that started by someone Everyone's just running forward and connecting fluidly in in stride. It's perfect. And it just basically unzips the opponent, right? So what City tried to... That might be the teaser for the week. (laughs) Okay, so so here's, here's what I'll say, right? Like, the idea is City, I think when you have a situation where players like these cage fighters and Aspie and, and Rudiger are so tight to your players in the half spaces, what you have to maybe take a moment to realize is that one of the intentions that we had mentioned with the half space in the first place is to attract that pressure. Now, typically you want to attract that pressure once that player is on the ball and maybe driving a goal and you force them to kind of step and then you can play around them. But in the case that they're already there, already on your back, and especially if they're going to track you really high up the field, like we, I saw Rudiger like up on Mares, like deep into City's half in, in certain like moments of play or as Liquetta all the way up at the half line when, when City was distributing the ball, like circulating it in, in Chelsea's half. And so what, what, they, what City very, I think, shrewdly recognized was like, if they're going to press us this hard, then the space is inherently behind them. And so if you are able to basically pass a ball, let's say Zinchenko were to play a ball to Foden, who's in the half space, Aspilicueta comes up behind him, rough and tumble, pressures him from behind. And if Foden is then able to pass it off centrally to someone else, Say it's Gundigan. And Zinchenko had been making a run right after he played the initial ball into the space behind Aspilicueta, and you find them, then you've basically taken the cage fighter out of the equation. Okay. Yep. And and it sounds it might sound complicated, but it's the type of thing that like these high level teams are very well versed in. Yeah, and sounds, sounds pretty simple to me. I don't know. It's, sure. Yeah. 
so so I'm glad because the idea is that this is a reasonably fundamental concept that can be kind of applied, especially when the opponent is really, really highly pressuring one player. And you can kind of use that to your advantage to pull them out of position. And then you have this nice thing where, let's yeah. say you have options on either side. You could have somebody darting into the space behind from the, from the center or from the width. You could have the ball played in by any handful of players, that final pass. But the whole idea is you don't try to receive under pressure and do something with it. You receive under pressure to pull that player out and then you play immediately behind them. And For sure, yeah. This is the type of thing that City tried a couple of times, and, and the chances that they got, for the most part in this game, came from third-man runs of this of this nature, or the Ooh. situation, there was there was one where Foden got the ball, and it, there was a last-ditch tackle by Rudiger that was effectively, Reese James was bypassed, Azpilicueta was on an island, he didn't know whether to mark De Bruyne or Foden, a quick exchange was played around them, and the ball gets kind of driven towards goal i think it's played to foden and then rudiger tackles it at the last second there's a there's another sequence where foden does a third man run gets in behind aspliqueta and rudiger and and the the comical thing or the effective thing here is that aspliqueta is like trying to track him back but the nature of running through this narrow channel in this third man run for foden means that there's basically no space and so aspliqueta like i believe um runs into Rudiger or or maybe it's Jorginho runs into Rudiger like trying to track back on Foden because it's such a small space that he's penetrated through and there's literally no room so much so that they run into each other right and then this was kind of finalized Foden did a move at the top of the box he drove to the width it was crossed and then Aspilicueta tackled it last second to clear it over the bar yeah and so what ends up kind of happening is this the type of thing that like it gave them great chances solid solid chances but they didn't do it enough and they did too much of this receiving with their back to goal and not kind of initiating these runs or receiving and playing negatively or getting frustrated or trying to, you know, really, really find the ball in the half space and do something with it there instead of kind of like recognize that it was totally being obliterated. So that's the first thing that I would say that doubled down upon could have been effective given that it did give them chances. Um, but yeah, but who's to say what, what are your thoughts on that? I think I think it gave them chances, but infrequently um, or inconsistently, at least when 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 using those central areas, at least because I think the the tracking for midfield was just, I mean, it was just kind of too good. I, I think uh, the third man runs in the wider areas were maybe a bit more effective. And yes, I don't know, can I can I take one one way that sure so you try to fix this, Kyle Walker. I said I talk about in the first half, but the only the only way I saw City consistently create chances in this game was through Kyle Walker because his, his okay. overlapping one, runs down the wing were just killer every time when uh, Mahrez would cut inside a little bit and Walker would step up from, I mean, he was effectively part of a back three for most of this game because Silva and Zinchenko would tuck pretty far inside. And that, that was the one thing Chelsea really didn't seem to have an answer for. Hmm. So kind of like, yeah, like, 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 like overloading the width. I think you over, mentioned this. Overloading the width. Yeah, because, I mean, it's a scenario where you have, like I mentioned earlier, one-to-one -one marking or pretty close to it on the wing. So you send a second player over there. Now you have two-to-one. Right? It, it, it's a little bit harder to track. And when Say did this quickly, like it, it was extremely effective. And I was really surprised they didn't go for this more because the, the center was just... I don't know. I feel like the center was kind of lost from the start in this game. They needed to start looking to other spaces than the one they normally play in, and they were maybe not as willing to do that as they should have been. 
Yes. One of the things that I found very, very surprising about this game was that there was basically nothing that happened down the middle. Yeah. Like one of the tactics that, that city approached this with as well in trying to unzip this team was anytime, let's say one of their like De Bruyne or, or Bernardo or any of these players showed for the ball Foden in the half space, they drew the cage fighter out of their position into the cage. Mm-hmm. There were several occasions in which uh, the defensive line for city played a ball over the top over the cage fighter into an on-running city player. And the two notable situations in which this occurred was a ball, a lofted ball played for an aerial duel between Phil Foden and Thiago Silva, which I'll let you guess. Yeah. I'll let you guess who won that. And actually guess. Yes, please guess. Thiago Silva. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. You you get one birthday brownie point. Um, yeah, horrendous idea. Like the type of thing that was like, I saw that and I was like, yeah, I mean, the, if, the, the kind of ball you might want a striker on the field to contest, huh? Precisely, precisely. <laughs> yeah. And and the other one that was, I think, notable was the same sort of thing into Sterling against Reese James. And also, yeah, pretty easy guess on the winner of that one. Um, exactly. And so th- this that was a that was a route that I wasn't so impressed by because it, when you just don't have the personnel to make the type of thing work, right? We talk all the headlines talking about how Pep overthought the match. I don't really like that 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 kind of phrasing. I I think that every every manager I don't know maybe we can talk about this as a separate entity too. Every manager makes their tactical adjustments. Pep likes making specifically maybe more tactical adjustments, but it's just such an easy narrative. It's such an easy thing to proclaim after every game he loses. Like, oh, you know, well, he just thought too hard on his laptop. Like, listen, he made the changes he thought were going to work. They didn't work. It, it may have it may have done something to weaken his side in lining up the team the way that he did. But it is what it is. And hold, and hold your thought, because the, the reason I'm bringing this up is like, one simple thing that you could say is like you mentioned, okay, if you're playing a real nine on the field, then that approach works, right? If you're playing a team that has a five back intense pressure in the half spaces, yeah. but you have, you know, uh, uh, Aduritz up top or like a Raul Jimenez, I don't know, like guys that are like good at holding the ball and, and like yeah, for sure. things, of, things of that nature, then you can play that. But the fact of the matter is like, if, if you, if city were to have done that, then the narrative would have been, oh, well, you know, city played with a, striker for the first time all year yeah. it, would have, it was a total nightmare why they do it no and I, I i'm not advocating that i'm saying you know if they were gonna do what you mentioned and start hitting those aerial balls then it's good but i think city should not have looked to play that way in this game they should have looked to play a different way entirely and i, I do think that uh their formation was a mistake and the lineup pep chose was a mistake but not because of not having a striker i, I can maybe get into that a bit later well, so the final point that I'll make, and then let's talk about that, because I think that's that's a it's an important thing that we have to touch upon. The, the last thing I'm going to say in terms of methods that they tried to approach this with was by doing something that, that I call hopping the fence. So I, I know, Will, you've maybe perused this piece that I wrote a while ago for Touchline Theory, but sure it's, basi- it, it's basically on the merits of having defensive players break through the line of confrontation of the defensive line. And so what that basically means is like, if Zinchenko has the ball or Walker has the ball and the opponent isn't pressing them, that you would instruct them or perhaps center back like Diaz or, or stones to actually dribble from the back dribble out until the opponent gets drawn out of position and presses you. And, and, and that there's a bunch of different kind of exchanges and ways that you can find the free man by doing this. But hopping the fence is basically like, taking the line that the defense won't cross and deliberately breaking it 
so that somebody comes and tries to get you, right? So City yeah. tried to do this a couple times. And I, I like that because I'm a huge fan of hopping the fence. But I think what was, was quite interesting was, like I said, Zinchenko, Kyle Walker, they both had some moments where they were like, all right, this isn't working. I'm just going to drive. I'm trying to pull somebody out of position and see whether one of the people I pull out of position then leaves one of my players that's maybe more um, oriented to this type of thing, like available to play the ball into. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the, the problem were the marking runs by those attackers, man. Like you mentioned this earlier. Mount, Havertz, Pulisic, each of them had two, one, two, or three tackles each. Yeah, of like, and, and Kovacic, too, came on as an attacker for Mount at some point and was also fantastic doing this. Right. And, and so when you have a situation in which your attacking players aren't even letting you successfully hop the fence, like you're not even drawing out the opposition, you're just pulling the attackers back with you further congesting the space that you want to open up. Yeah. It's impossible. You can't do anything. You can't and do so anything. I think that that's kind of like my verdict here, right? I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the you know, the six maybe or the or the formation. Yeah. Or something that, but but my, my ultimate point with all of this is like, I don't think that anybody that Pep could have possibly fielded would have unlocked this, this fortress that Chelsea put down. I, I firmly believe that. I think that Fernandinho came on and made an instant impact in ways that we can discuss. Uh, Rodri has a certain ability on the ball. I, I do not think it would have mattered in this game. I, I think that Chelsea's think system was was so robust. Okay, let's hear it. I, I, I'm very, um, very curious. I, I agree. I think I think my final verdict on Chelsea's defensive system is the same as yours. I think it was just it was too good. It didn't really matter what City did. Um, I, I think City would have had to drastically change something about the normal play because this. You know, this, as you mentioned, this is a perfect system. You know, it's been designed exactly to stop Pep doing this. And maybe I, we, we talked about this, I think, back in one of the previous episodes. We talked a bit about um, maybe whether it's better for a manager to be more reactive or to have a very defined style of play. And one of the drawbacks of having a very defined style of play like Pep's is that it's possible to game plan for it like this. And that game plan maybe works a little bit better uh, than it would have otherwise when Pep kind of plays into his, you know, traditional system and just makes it all about the half spaces and doesn't use a six and doesn't use a traditional striker and becomes more focused on those spaces. Then, yeah, a game plan that's specifically designed to not let you use those spaces becomes a lot more effective. But does having Aguero on the field change this game? Probably not. I think Fernandinho maybe does change this game not going forward but just defensively because i mean, city you know we we've also mentioned before are kind of reliant on quick fouls and yellow cards to stop counterattacks because they throw so many midfielders forward yes and fernandinho is the master of this gundogan incredible player he is he is not the best at stopping counterattacks especially when he picks up a yellow card in the first half and a few minutes later chelsea end up getting their goal i i, I think fernandinho maybe stops that so I I totally concur with the idea that the professional fouls was the one thing that City was missing when they played a team that literally was only going to threaten them via counterattack. Mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree with that. I think um, we talked in the yellow card episode about the fact that Fernandinho does this really, really nice thing where anytime he murders somebody, he goes and pats their head and checks to see whether they're, whether they're okay. Yeah, and Gundogan looks guilty. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like, like, 
Gundogan has just, he just doesn't have the demeanor for it, you know, like, and, and Fernandinho kind of has this assassin vibe to him where he will take somebody down and he will do the little things that he knows will kind of psychologically sway the ref to maybe not give him a card and things like that. And when you play a team that is just always looking to feed Werner in or Werner is making a run to drag the city defense out of the way so that Havers can come in behind him, you need somebody that can just grab onto a shirt and tug him down. And so in terms of maybe stifling Chelsea's chances, maybe. Maybe a player like Fernandinho gets them to extra time, you know? But in terms of breaking down Chelsea, I don't see any player that City could have fielded that would have actually allowed them to score a goal had it not been, obviously, for the great fortune that they had in the in the sense that like every single time a player went through somebody was marking them yeah. every time there was a shot it was blocked so on and so forth i i can think of one player that i think could have made a difference in this game and that's okay. Bernardo silva who i thought either played very poorly or was horribly misutilized because hmm. if if silva had spent more of his game making the same kind of runs that walker was making maybe able to do it a bit more frequently since he's not a defender and he has less ground to cover to get to those positions yeah maybe that can be really effective but instead silva spends the entire game cutting inside and getting the same positions that gundian and de bruyne are already in it ends up contributing very very little right and and it's the idea like chelsea Chelsea knew City were only going to try and, and play in these spaces. They put as many people as around that, around those spaces as possible to stop it, right? But but City just keep on trying to play into these spaces, right? Throwing more people into that already crowded thing is yeah. just really not going to help you, especially when you're up against fantastic, physical, experienced center backs. Now, what City needed to do, I think, is just recognize that okay. Tuchel has got these half spaces absolutely locked down. You know, we, we've got Azpilicueta, Rudiger, Thiago Silva back here mopping things up. We're not going to do this. We're going to have to start looking for something else. We're going to have to start either playing a lot faster on the counterattack, or we're going to have to start looking at the wings and start looking at more traditional routes of attack that aren't maybe, you know, quite so precise. But they didn't do it. And this, this is maybe where my frustration with this game on the whole comes from. It's like... I, I agree with you that this was an absolutely incredible defensive performance from Chelsea. One of the best I've ever seen. And I, I agree there's a lot of interesting tactical angles to look at. But like during the match, I, I looked over at my friend that I was watching this with in like the 20th minute. And I said, City are just not going to be able to break this down. And Chelsea's going to win this game 1-0 off a counterattack. And nothing, <laughs> changed. nothing changed for the rest of the game. It did just, you put money on it? <laughs> I did, actually. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, yeah. yes. So I, I agree with you. I think I also had an inkling very early on in the first half when I saw kind of like the discouragement. There was like a certain scene in which there were like four city players that threw their hands up when Chilwell was marking Mares, pushing him backwards. Then Rudiger kind of pushed up the field to close it down. Jorginho came in. All these city players were like, oh my God, man, we can't get rid of these guys. And at that moment, you kind of sense this whole like, all right. How are we going to do this? Because like you said, right, this whole half space dominant soccer is City's bread and butter. And it's the thing that, that's won them the Premier League this year. It's the thing that's allowed them to totally dominate every team, maybe save Chelsea in recent fixtures. But I think your idea, so a couple of things, like the Bernardo Silva thing is very interesting because Silva played so centrally in this game for what I agree with you, absolutely no reason. I think that if you've got a player 
like that who can play kind of this hybrid role of the 10 or on the wing or even as a false nine in weird scenarios like you've got to recognize the congestion in the center of the field and you've got to say listen Conte is this guy that could be a Ballon d'Or winner Jorginho is playing out of his mind you've got Thiago Silva who's a you know experienced veteran Aspilicueta whatever you gotta think to yourself all right every single player defensively is very sound but the only place where there aren't as many of them is just far away from the goal. And much of City's attacking approach, even if it's typically by going through the half spaces, is to drive and cross the ball far post, right, along the ground and tap it in. Because it's a high XG chance, because it's a method in which you can start an attack on the right and finish it on the left. Mm -hmm. There's all these different reasons for it. And it's very effective and it's worked very well. It's shaped a lot of, I think, modern tactics too. And... I think that your your comment earlier was is very interesting where they just didn't overload the width very much. They always had their fullback just driving inwards. They were hopping yeah. the fence, but hopping the fence towards the center. And if you took Bernardo and put him on the wing with Sterling, like yeah. had him kind of overload Sterling's side against Reese James, I think you find both of those players with more space and more time to make something happen. And if you at least take out one of them, now what, what has to happen? Now Azpilicueta, who again is a very talented defender and has played on that side before, like has to be a right back. Yeah. And Diego Silva shifts and everybody else shifts because Reese James is caught out. And, and I would fancy, frankly, Bernardo Silva and Sterling to figure out something one time, two times, three times against Azpilicueta in space to run into, especially if Azpilicueta is pushed high on Foden or Kevin De Bruyne in the half space. You know what I mean? Like sure. I, I would... I would honest. I would. That's that's the route that they, I think you're right. They never could have been explored more. It, it felt like to actually start getting those chances and see what it could have come to. It's kind of hit a couple and gave up. Started going back to what they were used to. I think what's kind of unique about this too is like you rarely ever see fullbacks, wingbacks, like man mark. And and it wasn't. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't necessarily a man marking thing. It was the type of thing where just like every time that player got the ball, they were just absolutely smothered by these players they didn't follow them around the field right it's not the lead system they were just anytime the ball came into their zone because it was very much zonal right it's very much based on these half spaces these channels the central mm -hmm. kind of region but they just dominated that space so much and, and one thought that maybe crossed my mind too on the topic of overloading the channels is like it's the same thing as if you have a player that's so hard on your back in the half space if you have someone so hard on your back in the wide channels then is it possible to even, like, as an attacking team, is it possible to just pin that defensive team to those players? So, like, have Sterling be so far wide and so, like, deep. Like, almost have an exchange between, like, Walker and Mares, right? Have something where where Mares he recognizes that, that Chilwell is on him at all times. He receives the ball, Chil Chilwell is on him. Give him the ball, have Chilwell step up. Given the ball again, have Chilwell step up. See at what point Chilwell stops stepping up, but see if you can kind of play with that such that you tug Chilwell out of that space and then Walker can go in behind, yeah. right? And just these these yeah. these ways that you can kind of like, if they're going to press you, let them do that and, and, and pull them out of position and drag them out of position, but you have to capitalize on the vacancies in behind. Yeah, and, and, and they, just, they didn't capitalize the few chances they got and... They like, didn't. They they didn't then go back and say, "Well, we got a decent chance from this. Let's try this again." They they would just try something different or go back to the middle, 
they never really spent enough time like pulling on Chilwell, like seeing if they could get him to break. It's, I think that was that was probably the weak link in this Chelsea back line, all hmm. things considered. And it's crazy to think that that type of player could be a weak link. I know but you're totally right. But I mean, he's 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 the most attacking. He is maybe a uh, Rudiger is a bit less experienced in terms of positional support on his side than Aspilicueta is with James. You know, and like I said, you have Walker Mares should have had maybe Bernardo Silva out there up against him. I mean, that it, that's where I think City really should have focused. Um, but yeah, if you are a City fan, uh, don't get too down. I think while this did make like, City look very, very bad for one game, I also think this is a system that is not going to be something that anyone else can easily replicate. I think it's reliant on having some incredibly experienced, world-class center backs who communicate well, having some hard-working midfielders and like we mentioned, maybe even having some midfielders in forward positions that are willing to track back. I don't think this is something that West Brom are going to be doing successfully anytime soon. I don't think it's something that even Liverpool could do very successfully. I think it's a very tailor-made system for Chelsea. And as well as Tuchel did, it's also very much about how the players performed in this system. I also think that there's a little bit of good fortune sprinkled in there. You can't ignore it. Like there, there were, there were, there were some moments where Rudiger was in the right place at the right time to block that Foden shot. Aspilicueta kicked that ball over the, over the bar. And yes, this is the product of good positioning and good defensive awareness. And you know, Aspilicueta checking his shoulder with a run being made behind him when a cross is about to be delivered, which is something that very few defenders maybe are capable of doing and interpreting in that split second. Yeah. But these are, these whole, are, can we do a whole episode just about as Piliqueta and, and how much I like him and how good he is. Sure. You can talk for the full hour on that one. That'd be great. It'll make up for this one. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the point is fundamentally, like there could have easily been a moment in which Pulisic didn't track back and smother whatever it was Zinchenko or somebody else who had made a darting run from deep. There, there could sure. have easily been a, a moment where Jorginho and Conte just had one single miscommunication that led to a goal. Yeah. But there it just could have been a moment didn't... in the 97th minute where Mares just happens to hit a right-footed volley just into the top corner out of nowhere, and all that defensive work is for nothing. Exactly. And that that speaks to how good City are. That even in this you know historically good defensive performance by Chelsea, like they still had a few chances, and like it still could have gone their way. But it I, I think, yeah, I think one of the impressive things on the on the topic of communication, and I, I do want to wrap this up here, um, was that we talk about communication being perfect and how there was like very little room for error and there were almost no errors. The moments that the final thing is that the moments in which there were almost errors, Chelsea handled it so well. And again, I would encourage anybody to take a look at this video if you if you if I ever get returned to the Twitter space. Send me a message, a DM on Twitter, and I, and I'll send you the link um, for this video because I certainly can't post it anywhere after being you know banished and put into jail. But the the thing that was unbelievable was there's there's several moments that I outline in this in this compilation where let's say uh, I think it was like a ball was lofted into the far corner for uh, City or Chelsea, and Walker jumped up to head the ball away. Or, and and he immediately started bounding down the line while somebody, say, Mares, received it, I think, like the, the ball, the second ball, right, off the header, right? And Jorginho is, like, running into the space, and Jorginho is pointing for Rudiger to track Walker, who's going to run in behind him, because Chilwell is dra dragged high up the field trying to go up for the header with, with Walker. Yeah. And 
Rudiger doesn't get the cue. And so Rudiger goes and steps on Mares, who's about to receive the ball instead. And Jorginho just instantly changes course and just follows Walker instead. And then Chilwell comes back. Chilwell becomes the first presser. And then Jorginho back presses him into the, into the sideline and boots it into the stands. And it was like, those are the tiny, tiny little moments where a miscommunication like that could end up in a counterattack that results in a goal. But they just dealt with it. It was like they were just mentally, they were just one second ahead. They were just, the reactions were just perfect. Like every time there was just a minor, minor lapse, they were like, oh, I'm going to take responsibility for this. I'm going to be accountable. Rudiger didn't realize that he probably should have stuck with Walker, who's running behind. It's my job now. I'm, you know, Jorginho versus Walker. I mean, come on. What is that speed battle? But yeah. he catches up. He catches up. It's just, they, 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 those moments, those glimmers of hope that City had were just totally extinguished by this Chelsea, you know, fire extinguisher. Like they just entirely yeah. suffocated them. And that, that's what I'm saying. It's like even, even in those brief moments where like the system breaks down, like Chelsea have enough individual quality in defense that they're going to be able to figure it out. Like as Filiqueta and Thiago Silva are two like of the most experienced defenders at the top level in the world. And, you know, they, they, they're, they know exactly what's going on all the time. Jorginho, like I mentioned earlier, not the most mobile, but he's a very smart player, you know, stuff like the situation you just mentioned, you know, he knows what to do. And Conte, and he's smart and fast enough to make up for just about any mistake he makes just by being able to run and go fix it himself. I mean, these they're great insurance policies to have, even if this system isn't perfect. Totally. Totally. Conte, I mean, there's almost like no words left to describe him. Again, there's a clip in that video where Conte basically, Foden is in behind him. And Conte is marking out the lane to Foden, a pass from, I think, Gundogan. And Conte is facing forward at Gundogan, perfectly in stride, step by step, with Foden's movements behind him, trying to get open. Like, he just covers him like he has eyes in the back of his head. I, I, I've never seen, like, that type of just, like, awareness. Obviously, he's taking little peeks and whatever, but it literally looks in this clip like he has just eyes in the back of his head. Foden's trying to get open behind him, and Conte is perfectly mirroring his, like, dismarking movements it's ridiculous he's but, cool, man. chelsea are a scary team <laughs> like uh, a lot of those players are very young are gonna get better too i'm uh i'm a bit worried about them i think it'll be interesting to see how they implement what, what system they try to implement on teams that aren't city right because the one of the main features of this and let's if we tie this all together right high level tuchel has designed a system that you said that you mentioned has these insurance policies absolutely but also that just maximize obstruction and intensity in the pockets in which City's attacks always try to be funneled through. And they designed a back line that is resistant to the manipulation that Juego de Posición typically tries to prioritize. This idea of move the opponent so that we can attack spaces they leave behind. You can't move this Chelsea system where these players are just deployed in each of their respective five channels and they they just, they own them. They have such impressive accountability. Anytime somebody, there's some sort of switching off everybody's communicating it's it's verbal it's gesture cues it's impeccable there's a little bit of luck sprinkled in but you've got these attackers that are willing to commit to defending you've got two sixes that are shielding balls in using their cover shadows expertly and like like you said like conte making some ridiculous tackles just like last ditch just you know nipping the ball off of players and and so it just becomes this incredible thing to behold. And yes, I I wonder what they implement against a team like Burnley that will well, they, try they to do different things. And that's uh one of Tuchel's great strengths as manager. I think I 
I mentioned this way before is he's he's very adaptable. I mean, he, like he has this five of the back setup, and I think the the five of the back is an incredibly flexible formation. I think maybe the most flexible formation for. Uh, I mean, th- that's a whole another episode probably. But I mean, you you saw like even the FA Cup like a couple weeks before this game, like Chelsea ostensibly lined up with the same formation but played completely differently. Like, yeah, they, they were focused on a completely different avenues of attack, and you even saw um, Azpilicueta and Reese James switch positions for that game, hmm. which is crazy. You know, having they had Reese James back there to deal more of the physical threat of Vardy, play defense in a completely different way, even with the same hmm. formation setup. It's uh, it's interesting. Tuchel is very good at that. And Chelsea have the pieces to put into a lot of different systems like that. So I think that we'll wrap things up with that conclusion. I think that the idea that you're bringing up right now, we have, we have come up with five or six podcast episodes within just this conversation. Know, yeah, but write some of these down. I think that the, the one that you're mentioning specifically right now is like Tuchel has designed a, a system that can apply to various problems. And Juego de Posición, ideally speaking, is a system that can apply to various problems, that can solve various problems. It's not a formation. It's not a starting point. It's not, you know, the numbers and the the, the locations of the players in one given snapshot, but it's how players move relative to one another, how they use these imaginary lines in the field to understand spatially where they need to be and when, what areas of the field they should prioritize and so forth. And maybe that's another episode we have to do where we talk about how can you define or design a system that is not just we play this one way and this is the way that we play, but rather you play a five back in which your fullbacks can be these really rough and tumble like defensive stalwarts or Reese James can hit a mean cross in. Reese James can control a fantastic ball with his chest in the corner. Chilwell scores goals. You know, yeah, how can we goals too uh, off the bench? Chelsea still he's he's been used quite a bit under Tuchel, I think. So it becomes this question of like, yeah, I think that one of the things that we might start to see, I'm I'm actually wrapping up right now. One of the things that we might actually <laughs> see coming coming up in the future, and it's something that I think coaches try to do, but is the the evolution of these moldable tactical systems where you you don't just like play a 4-4-2, you do a low block 4-4-2, a middle block 4-4-2, a high block 4-4-2, whatever. But rather, this this pendulum swinging, cage fighter up, cage fighter down, fullback up, fullback down, like these morphing positions that are able to, to take on different forms in different moments in different against different opposition, a system that can basically bend and twist in the ways that you need it for any given fixture. I think that that might be something that we start to see more and more commonly um, as, as we move forward and keep watching games in the years to come. I think it's something that's fascinating. I think it's something that's incredibly hard to do because it's hard. It's hard. It's hard enough to look at the infinite number of possibilities that can happen in a field and say, okay, coach, how do I solve, you know, I I might not even, I might know how to solve a hundred of these. How do I solve all of them? it's hard enough to solve those individually. It's even harder to design a system that can solve them all on their own. If they all collectively buy into a system that works, but it's, it's clear that designing one of those kind of environments of those systems that does function can be the difference between winning the Champions League final or coming just short. So. Yeah. And I, I agree. I love that kind of way of design systems. It's something I've tried to do with my own teams, kind of a, 
I don't know what you'd call it, kind of like a seesaw midfield, maybe, that uh, is a bit adaptable. Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of managers are already doing, but maybe that uh, Tuchel has done more successfully than most in recent years, and that Zidane has also done more successfully than most in recent years. You know, those have been two of the most successful managers in the Champions League over the past five years, and they both play very kind of adaptable, reactive styles. So maybe that's the way things are going. We're moving away from the Pep era and into something new. I'm excited to see what happens. Me too. Well, All right. I, we, we didn't do an hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We did. It's under an hour and a half, and that's good. That's pretty good. We, well, then let's, so let's, let's get off quickly. So it's, Let's cut it right here. No okay, stop thank, time. We'll, thank you all for, for joining us. Um, next week, Will is going to bring some interesting stuff to the table. I'm very excited for that. Yeah. Um, but until then, till next time. Until then, till next time.